Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. Part of being a good salesman is having a good sense of humor. Today's guest is the host of the Level Up podcast. He cares about legacy building, not just with his mom, but he's working on the relationship with his dad. Edward, welcome. Hey, Rena, how's it going? Great. How are you? Good, good, good. I don't think we need my note taker here. That's more for sales meetings. You can throw them out. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I know sales is something you can speak about. Yeah, I've been I've been around the block a couple of times. <laughs> oh my gosh. I just saw a great quote that I wanted to bring up. I felt like it goes along with your story. Behind every strong person is a story that gave them no choice. Yeah, yeah, that's that summarizes up, it up pretty well. Yeah. Can we talk about how that applies to your story? Sure. Really what happened was just from the get-go, I was thrown into a pretty good life situation as a kid. Money wasn't really an issue, but when I was about, yeah, when I was six years old, my father died of a heart attack. We were left with a business that really required his head to run. We were left with kind of a falling empire of sorts. And there was a ton of family drama. My parents weren't married. So there was like a significant embezzlement from the other side of the family. It was a absolute mess. But growing up, the only real thing that we had was money until I turned about 17, 18 or so. And around that point, when I was supposed to go to university and kind of take a a certain advantage and privilege from whatever money we had to potentially boost myself into a cushy job right out of school, we were flat out broke. It really doesn't matter how much you have as as long as you keep your lifestyle the same as it always was and don't make any lateral moves, you're going to end up in that situation either way. So it was no longer about going to school and, you know, having the college experience. It was, hey, it's time to literally grow up and figure out ways how to help keep this boat in the ocean. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I am so sorry. That sounds so hard, especially at a young age. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to compare, right? Because we only really live our lives. I really wouldn't like to claim that I'm like super traumatized and whatnot, but a therapist could have a therapist could have different opinions on that. <laughs> have you seen one? Only as a kid. When I was a kid, like the child children's therapist like flat out just refused to work with me. They were like, wait, I don't know what to do here. And it was funnily enough, like the best one in, in the region. And by region, I mean like our country and the other two countries uh, above and below. Yeah, tell me about where you grew up. Well, 
where I grew up and where I currently am, joining you at 2.05 a.m. is Riga, Latvia in Eastern slash Northern Europe. I mean, we really don't like the name Eastern Europe because we're kind of we're kind of growing out of that phase. But yeah, that's where I'm at. That's where I've been. Oh, my God. You are so flexible booking this at 2 a.m. Thank you. Oh, n- no worries. This is actually my schedule for the last five, six years. I go to bed at like 4 or 5 a.m. on a daily basis. That's just how I live. <laughs> so you're a night owl. Yep. Growing up, I was addicted to Cartoon Network and grew up with a lot of American media and TV shows and whatnot. So I developed a pretty good knack for the communication style and for the language itself. So I had to leverage that when I was 19 years old. I mean, I could find regular jobs, but a regular job in a country that does not have an existing middle class is a pretty piss poor way to live. I'll be completely honest. So I leveraged whatever skills I had and found my first company, uh, which was a tourism, luxury tourism consolidation firm for clients in the United States. So that's how it all started out. I've been doing night shifts since I was since I was barely out of high school. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I heard you say too that you started listening to podcasts at like 11 or something. Yeah, 11, 12. I was big into internet culture, YouTube, early like gaming, stuff like that. And those were kind of the predecessors for like comedy podcasts or podcasts that were, you know, more just a couple of guys just talking BS, right? That was my first introduction to podcasting. Do you feel like you've incorporated some of that into your own brand? Oh, absolutely. It's always been a big part of my like conversational style. Now there's show that I run is very business centric. So I don't really get to shine that much of that part of my personality. It's a lot more dry and a bit more goal focused and heavy on like the executive side, but it's still part of who I am. Very, 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 very deep part of me is probably a comedian podcaster (laughs) to an extent. Yeah. Talk to me about starting your show because that was fairly recent along with your use of social media. I heard that you've only been doing that for a short while. What has it been like starting? starting a podcast and growing a brand alongside that. Yeah. So, wow. Podcasting was a pipe dream, something that I always thought I might do, but I never really had the right platform. But, you know, sometimes life really works out in a great way. And I started working with a man by the name of Colin Mitchell about a year and something ago. I think it was December of 2020. He was at the time more focused on a software company he was running, but he was also co-running at the same time Salescast, which is a company that produces B2B podcasts, which is where I work. That kind of gave me the avenue and the support and the raw materials on how to get get this thing going. And Colin was pestering me for months and months. Dude, you have to start your podcast. You'll do great. It's going to be fun. And it's ultimately also going to help you build a lot of influential business relationships. I was, I was scared as hell because in those moments when you're like, I think I'd be good at this, but then you actually have to go and do it. Those are the moments when you're like, you start you start thinking to yourself that the, the fear of failure really overtakes you in those moments. It really took just one very mind opening vacation to sit down with myself think if this is something that I want to do. And that was around the time when I became 25 years old. And I was like, Hey, you know what, listen, there's a couple of things in my life I want to do, or at least try doing this is the time there will be never be a better time. So here I am. How did you meet Colin? Oh, wow. So it was LinkedIn. And it was actually a community and Slack by the name of Rev Genius. They have like a sales marketing revenue community that's very, very active. And right now is very, very has grown immensely over the last couple of years. But you know, there I was 2020 hit, I was still doing my travel agent job, very, very good four years in and then boom, travel becomes a non-existent thing. It's done. 
It's done for the foreseeable future. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID. So I was in kind of a slump because the biggest mistake that I made at that age, because I got very, very comfortable within the last couple of years of working there. One of the main mistakes that I made, which I think everybody has to learn at some point, is that I stopped developing. I just became concrete and comfortable at what I was doing. I was making good money. Everything was good. So why put in the extra mile or even try to learn something new if you feel like you're absolutely on top of the world? <laughs> that was mistake number one, because <laughs> here comes March of 2020. And I'm going from being, you know, in a really, really good position to being unemployable because the job was very industry specific. It was very transactional B2C American markets in a country that has maybe what, like 2 million, we have like 2 million people that live here. So the job market did not have what I had before. It was just non-existent. So I had to pivot. I had to sit down, figure out what the environment is, where I want to be. So started checking these communities, doing LinkedIn, and somehow me and Colin got connected, had a 15-minute conversation, and I started working with him. Also with the travel job, I think I heard you say on the podcast with Colin that it was fully commission. Is that right? Oh yeah, 100% commission. You only get what you get, but it was heavily inbound. And so it wasn't like you had to do all your own hunting. It was a much more of a gathering role than it was a hunting role, but it was still fun. It was lucrative for the top 3% of the people in the office and everybody else was kind of, you know, doing okay. Within the first year and a half, I became one of those 3%, three percenters. Wow. What would you say was the key to that? Honestly, the key was the willingness to learn at on the spot and making sure that you are observing the behaviors and the patterns of the people who are in the position that you want to be in. Given how competitive the place was, it wasn't like anybody's really going to guide you or give you any advice. It was pretty much sink or swim. But, you know, living the cubicle life, you overhear things, you kind of learn things as you go. You hear all these conversations that happen and you start finding where to focus and how to make it work. Yeah. What did a conversation look like? What was a cold outreach? There was no cold outreach it was fully inbound they were all warm. to an extent actually so this was this was kind of a scummy thing but this is what just the travel agent industry is and anybody who's ever gone through a travel agent website will know this as for fact what they do is they advertise the lowest possible fare around the year so somebody's calling in thinking they're going to get like business class tickets to paris for like two thousand dollars which is an absolute steal and and those are available a week out of the year the chances of that person actually getting during those times is 53 to one. It was a lot of negotiating, a lot of bargaining. It was a lot of uncomfortable conversations from the get-go. But, you know, those who would stick around and see the value that, hey, you know, we might not be able to get you exactly what you wanted, but we can still get you, let's just say 20 or 30% off of the thing that you were going to buy anyways. That's where it worked out. Wow. And how did you end up there? In the travel agent industry? Yeah. That's actually a funny story. I had taken I had taken this other job and I met a classmate of mine, an old classmate, just on the street. Turns out he was working in the office next to it. And I was like, oh, cool, let's chat. And I wasn't very happy with the first job that I had. It, it was a casino job. I'm not a gambler or just, just wasn't super interesting to me, to be honest. I had a conversation with him and he was like, hey, I'm at this travel agent job. It's really not for me, but it sounds like something that might be for you. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take a chance. He told me some of the numbers that people were making. And I was like, okay, whatever I have to do to get there, given that at this point I was supporting our family, I was paying the bills, I was paying backlogs. 
of property taxes going three to four years. <laughs> so I had a pretty big bill on my hands at like the age of 19 and 20. You know, there I was going at it. I was like, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I'm going to do it because I've lived both lives, right? I've seen from an early age how, how much comfort it brings to you when you don't have to worry about money and then how much pain and agony it brings when you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet. So I was as motivated as anyone would be. That's really interesting. I'm curious, what has that done to your relationship with money? It's interesting, right? It's something that's made me a lot more susceptible to taking risks for the chance of getting where I want to be. It's made me a lot more focused on just career in general, potentially making personal relationship sacrifices and everything else that comes with a crazy schedule and with a life where you're focusing more and more on your career. From the negative side of it all, it's it's, it's also taught me a level of self-belief in how to make money that also made me a little bit overspending at times, a little bit careless even, I'd say, simply because from a young age, I was in a position where I knew that I could make this happen for myself. So one of the stupidest things that I've always done and I'm still guilty of is always setting the goalpost further. Like if I'm going to make X amount, that's when I'll start the savings account. That's when I'll start the mortgage. That's when I'll start this and that. As years go by, you just keep setting that goal goalpost further. So you end up without a lot of things to show for it. I'd say that's my biggest like, you know, challenge that I need to like mentally figure out like, where does this stop and how do I start taking care of my future for a time that maybe won't be as bright? Yeah, that's really interesting. What would you say that you've learned from being raised by a single mom? I learned very early how to cook my own meals. One of the things that I'm very, very proud of. If anybody wants to impress their friends or their loved ones or just become an absolute badass at cooking, it is so easy nowadays. So easy. YouTube is your friend. You can replicate any of your favorite restaurants, recipes, you can replicate any of your favorite fast food. And it's so well made and so entertaining and so highly produced nowadays on a platform like YouTube, which, you know, wasn't the case 10 or 15 years ago, that you'll have a good time learning and you'll have a good time watching those videos. And you'll also learn how to be an absolute genius in the kitchen. That's cute. Do you cook for your mom? Uh, yeah, I have been the de facto chef of anywhere that I've lived with mom, ex-girlfriend. I've been taking that role to myself for forever. <laughs> what about any other chores? I mean, I'll be honest, I'm totally impressed by a guy that can cook. I've had a couple chefs on the show. I'm into that. <laughs> I'm good with cooking. I'm good with dishes. I'm awful with clothes. Like, like oh. take care of the clothes. I'll take care of everything else. <laughs> oh, that's great. What does family mean to you? That is a very, very convoluted topic for me because my dad's side of the family are greedy, greedy people that I'm not in touch with. I didn't even go to my uncle's funeral. That was actually fairly recently. So that side of my family, I have, I just have no interest in them as human beings, to be honest. It's been too much. It's, it's been a lifetime of pain and regret that will never really be forgiven. And understandably so. Uh, they are human too. They had the same trauma of my father's death as we did. It's just that we decided to keep our humanity after that. And they were more interested in getting the loot, <laughs> so to speak. So that side of my family, I am not in touch with and never will be. But, you know, since it's me, my mom and a couple, you know, her, her parents from her side, those are absolutely my people. Like I'll stand by my mom. I'm a complete mama's boy through and through. I don't deny it. I don't hide it. It's a fact. And if somebody has a problem with that, then they're not somebody I want to talk to. <laughs> That's really special. Has she given you some support or advice or been your cheerleader? through tough times? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure 
sure if the science behind this checks out, but I like to think that I have at least 50% of her brain, only she's had it for 30 years longer than I have. So I always look at her as a very, very great point of advice and somebody that I can talk to very, very honestly, even too honestly. Like a lot of people growing up, and this is something I will never understand, have all these issues with their parents. Their first thing is like, I turn 18, I want to get out of my house. I want to be this, I want to be that. They hide things, they, they kind of live separate lives. Like I've been always 100% real with my mom about everything that I've done, the good, the bad, the ugly, love, relationships, parties, money, whatever. Like I've been 100% open. That's the type of relationship I have. And that's the kind of relationship I intend to keep. <laughs> that is so special. I feel like I kind of have that with my dad. So well, it sounds hence to me, the name of the show. Yeah, it sounds to me like no subject matters are unable to be discussed. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. And do you want to be like that with your kids? Or if I'm mature to the point where I want to have kids, then absolutely. I really think that's the best way to raise your kids and also the best way to take care of them because you can't take care of your child if you don't know what's going on in their world. And that becomes especially dangerous when they're teenagers and young adults because you can't know what they're doing if they're not being open and communicated with you. And I think setting that type of environment is one of the top responsibilities of a parent, just setting an open channel of information. How did she do that? It was the fact that as a kid in school I wasn't very popular I didn't like school I didn't like going I didn't like doing anything I liked staying at home and playing video games and she was a single mother who was taking care of a business empire so she didn't really have 24 7 to look after everything that I'm doing so I had those phases where I was you know skipping school and lying and doing all of this stupid stuff that kids do right and the way she processed it was she would help me out where she could when I was in trouble but she would non-judgmentally I either help me out of the situation that I would get myself into or tell me that, you know, this is what you did and these are your consequences. But it was never a conversation of, oh, now I'm going to throw you out of the house or now I'm not going to talk to you. She took the adult stance of, I understand what you did. I understand where you're coming from. This is the result. This is not the result. Learn from it. And when I understand that there's no imminent danger, the only imminent danger was the consequences of my own actions, but there was no imminent danger from her. That was the moment I was like, okay, I can have a conversation with you about anything. Were there times that you had to repair that relationship? Of course, a little bit, but she was very understanding of me as a, as a child. I was kind of a rebel, but in a super nerdy way. And she kind of got it. When I became 16, 17, 18, I already had like a level of trust established with her. Then when I went out and, you know, became my own adult and started providing for us when she was out of employment for a while, that's when we got on the same level. She treated me as an adult, just like she would treat as a friend, a friend in a conversation, a peer. Since then, it's been smooth sailing. Whoa, that is such a huge level of responsibility at a young age. True. Do you feel like that grew you up quick? It grew me up quick and it also didn't because... One of the things that I think every grown up or every young adult who's maybe in their early mid 20s needs to understand is that your career and your bank account do not indicate how well you're doing as an adult. It does to an extent and it brings a lot of luxury and comfort and whatever. And it is something that is a necessary part of somebody's existence. But what is it? But, but it's not the end all be all. And my biggest trope was 
that going into the workforce at the age of 19, I never really got that self-exploratory time of, you know, growing up mentally. So in 2020, I was basically there like 23 or yeah, 23 years old, but I, I was as emotionally mature as I was at 19 because I kind of thought to myself, you know, hey, I've accomplished some things that, you know, indicate me as an adult, I can take care of myself and provide for myself. Ergo, I don't need to grow anymore. I was emotionally stuck as a 19 year old until a year back. And that was, that was a very, very tough realization. <laughs> yeah. I also think that when we measure our success monetarily only, it holds us back from exploring new things Yep. in a brave way. Like you've explored social media, you've explored sales, you've explored different verticals, you've explored different inbound versus outbound. If you were so caught up just on how much money you were making, wouldn't that influence your sales mojo or wouldn't it, wouldn't people be able to tell? Like I can tell when people are desperate for a sale. Definitely one of the things. And I think I was also the type of person to spend it as quick as I got it. So there would be like cycles of it, you know, there's the desperation week and then there's the non-desperation week. <laughs> and yeah, that, that was definitely a big part of it. But I think the biggest thing was just how I started treating personal relationships, you know, dating and everything like that. It, it was to the point where I was like, you know, hey, I'm you know doing all these things right. And obviously I know how to take care of myself, but doing any type of emotional growth in that regard. And even potentially, I'd even say I was treating some personal relationships very, very casually, very much like a sale, which is, you know, messed up in many different ways. But it was it was something that I really had to dig myself out of and to get my mentality back in check and to start treating the people that I was entangled with in any way much better and with much more dignity. How do you treat somebody like a sale? You basically, <laughs> in simple terms, you know, you go, you get what you want, and then you leave. <laughs> I mean, that's the answer you were expecting, wasn't it? <laughs> I think I have seen that before. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a byproduct of just being a young man in general. I mean, that's just what happens. But when you're working in the type of industry where you have to like charm people all day or whatever, you become kind of a dangerous weapon. <laughs> and there was a big mentality shift for me in 2020 because the environment that I was working in at that time, like they were very much transactional. The workplace was very much transactional. And the mentality was very much, you know, go get it done, push your number you know, whatever it takes, yada, 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 which is absolute BS and not the way anyone should be doing sales in this modern environment. So when I moved to the B2B space, I kind of had some time to rethink, reconsider my own methodology, my own approach to do a little bit of emotional growing. And even before I got into the whole LinkedIn sphere and started working with Colin, I kind of came to the realization that that's not how I want to treat my book of business, that I want to be somebody who is purely trustworthy, purely informational, somebody who builds relationships first. And lo and behold, I start reading everything that's being you know put out and all the information of what the sales environment is. And that's exactly what the world is moving towards. Big shout out, for example, to Andy Paul, who just released a book, Selling Without Selling Out. I love that movement. And it was the right shift for me mentally, because it was really my natural state of mind from the get go. But somewhere along the lines, I got poisoned with the Wolf of Wall Street life that was shown by the first working experiences that I had. Right. I mean, to be honest, like I've had bosses too, that are like, are they going to buy? If not, get off the phone, right? That would be extremely 
transactional. They didn't understand why I was spending so long on a call building a relationship that could lead to the next sale. Exactly. It becomes super transactional. That is one thing, but then then you start adding where you start purging the lines between what you're doing and what is actually the truth. That's where it gets really, really dangerous and really, really messy. And one of the biggest reasons why only 3% of people, only 3% of people would trust a salesperson, according to statistics, 3%. And the big reason of that is exactly that mentality. Sell or get off the phone, push, 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 do whatever you have to do to get it done, skirt the lines between reality and fantasy and push your agenda and make sure to beautifully change facts and beautifully present things that work towards your agenda. That has been a real killer for the industry in general. And also a big reason why I think that younger people who could benefit from sales the same way I benefited, kids who potentially don't have the opportunity to go to college, kids who might have to take care of their families, they don't choose sales jobs because they want to stand for something bigger and they want to keep their morality and they want to keep their standards of just standards of morality, really. It is possible nowadays. And a big part of my content creation strategy in the next couple of months is going to shift exactly to that, to a place where I can start talking to younger people and introducing them to the world of sales as a way to make ends meet and also to structure a pretty comfortable life. That's amazing that you want to give back in that way. Are there any just tips off the top of your head that you would start people with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the first thing you want to do is create a LinkedIn profile. That's where the magic begins. I'm not going to praise the platform fully because more and more we see fake influencers. We see just people doing things on there that shouldn't be done on a professional platform, but that's fine. That's social media in general. If you've ever, you've ever scrolled so far on TikTok or YouTube where you get to the weird part of YouTube, like, like the videos just start making no sense. Have you ever gotten there? Uh, yeah. I mean, also I thought you were going to say like, have you ever scrolled on Twitter to the point of like it being back to the beginning? Like if you ever scrolled for so long, we were like, oh no, I already read that. No more notifications, like no more updates. Like that's it for now. <laughs> well, no, I haven't been there on Twitter. And I was never big into Twitter is what I'm saying. But for LinkedIn, you want to start following some of the very, very beautiful and legit people that are out there. If you're looking to go into sales, I mean, Andy Paul is a no brainer. Guys like Josh Braun, Colin Mitchell, my boss, I'm just going to plug him out there. Like he's one of the best and most sincere content creators there is. And his podcast is one of the best things to listen to if you're in the sales world, or if you're even planning to get into it, to hear people's stories about their own journey and transformation. Once you're on LinkedIn, just start encompassing all that information, start reading, start, be curious. If you see an industry term that you don't know, Google it, figure it out what it is and start understanding kind of the ecosystem and the things that people are doing. And second thing I'd say is join communities. If you Google right now, Slack, sales community. You're going to find RevGenius. You're probably going to find five or six more that are full of career-oriented salespeople, mostly in the B2B space. And listen, if you go in there right now, and I can, I, I haven't done this, but I promise you this is exactly what's going to happen. You go in there and you just send a simple message. Hey, my name is Ed and I'm 19 years old and I'm thinking of starting a career in sales. Can somebody please chat with me for 15 to 20 minutes and tell me why it's a bad idea? <laughs> and you, you'll probably get somebody with five, six, seven years of experience, either account managers or maybe even people in management positions, or maybe even a founder who sells, who's going to gladly have that conversation with you and even potentially unlock a door 
for your first entry job. I even think that that truthfully is a genius idea to do everywhere. Like you literally could do that on Twitter. You literally could do that on LinkedIn. You could do that from your Facebook and people will respond to that. Tell me why I shouldn't go into sales. People will give you their opinion. Yep, exactly, exactly. At the end of the day, if you ask for a meeting or if you ask for a quick virtual coffee with while asking for that type of advice, people love helping people. And salespeople love talking. They love for people to listen to them. Ergo, you know, I think, Rena, you've maybe said like 15 words during this whole podcast. <laughs> so I'm exhibit A. <laughs> and hey, if anybody's listening to this right now who's in that spot, like reach out to me. Like reach out to me on LinkedIn. I happily have a conversation with anybody. It's time for us to raise a new generation of not just salespeople, but revenue leaders in general, like people in revenue positions, because it's so underutilized. And I have so many friends who are my age, who are, you know, in their mid twenties, they're only now kind of figuring out like, Hey, I want to pursue a corporate career. The problem is that they are about three or four years behind a lot of others. And while people can start and have successful sales career careers at any point in time, wouldn't you rather have it done from the get go and already have those career accomplishments that, that are ultimately going to make sure that you live a pretty damn comfortable life. But how do you find those sales opportunities that aren't like what you described earlier that are mm. transactional that you know you have to meet a certain quota that there may not be a good feedback loop i'm gonna give you an unpopular opinion right here maybe it's good for people to get that type of first experience because then you're really gonna appreciate when you find something something that's good you're really gonna appreciate it you know you shouldn't be like me and spend five freaking years in that type of environment I'm, i can tell you that you're gonna you're gonna lose your hair you're gonna lose your soul and there will be dark circles below your eyes that only a priest will be able to get, get out <laughs> <laughs> but everybody should have at least one or two experiences that are just flat out terrible, just so they would really appreciate when they see a good thing. But if you're not in that mood, really anything startup, anything tech, anything SaaS, all of those terms are usually going to land you in positions that are either going to be very, very good for your self-development. They're going to pay very, very well, or it's going to be both. And ultimately you want both, but if you're 19, 20, 21 years old, either or is still a very, very good thing. How can you get started? I mean, if you have a day job, but you want to dip your toe in the water and try this. I'd say first and foremost, a lot of B2B jobs, and this isn't just sales, this is sales, marketing, anything that has to do with revenue, customer success, SEOs, you name it. If it's in the business to business space, those companies mostly live on LinkedIn. What you want to do for that hour a day is create your LinkedIn profile, make it nice and pretty, put in the effort. Listen, if you're 19 or 20 years old right now, chances are this isn't your first social media profile that you've built. So you already know the ropes, but in this case, instead of posting pictures of your food or maybe of your vacation, you want to put something together that talks more to your skills, to what you can do. And it doesn't always have to relate fully to the position you're going after, but you'll be surprised how far of an advantage, something simple as taking a copywriting class or maybe being not even fluent, but conversational in another language, how far those skills are going to get you. So you take your LinkedIn profile, you make it nice, pretty and professional, and you start using your, so on LinkedIn, you get a hundred connection request invites every week. Start using those requests to contact people in sales, marketing, SaaS, 
tech, whatever you feel like you want to go after or want to find out more about, start adding those people with a simple, hey, I am an aspiring salesperson or I am somebody who enjoys your content. Can we connect? And, you know, 50% are probably going to ignore it, but the other 50% might give you the time of day to connect with you. And that's how you'll build a network. You already build something where you're going to be able to see relevant content from people in that position that you want to go after. You're going to see job openings and you're ultimately going to make your online business portfolio look nice and snazzy because you'll have connection requests within that industry. From there, I'd say engage with the content of about 50 or 60 people who are in hiring positions for the companies that you might want to work with. Create a Google Sheets tab of their profiles and engage with their content in at least some kind of way. Press the like, write a little comment. I know at first you're probably not going to understand what to even comment about, but once your learning phase gets to the point where you can add to the conversation or at least accentuate something something nice that they've said, start engaging with it. All of a sudden, boom, this person who holds the key of the door that you want to get through knows your name, knows your face, and knows that you know how to engage with content. I'd say learning how to have a social media presence in sales in 2022 is probably one of the top assets that you can bring to the table. You'll have a much easier time getting those positions and getting those interviews than the 95 other people who applied through the resume section. What have been some of your best performing posts or what has given you like the most feedback from the social media things that you're doing? Oh, I mean, I had a vanity metric boom. One of my posts had about 100,000 views on LinkedIn. It was a poll about a situation my friend had where like he missed an interview and then they didn't give him another shot. So it was a poll about, hey, you know, what would you do as the hiring manager? So that got like a lot of traction, but it didn't really bring me anything substantial because it was just a mix and match of things. In conventional social media, like for example, Instagram, views are everything. You want to get it in front of as many people as possible because that's how you can get that sweet advertiser money and maybe sponsorships and stuff like that. On LinkedIn and in business social media in general, you don't want to go for vanity metrics. You want to make sure that you're reaching exactly the type of people who you want to be in business with, the type of people who could be your buyers. So 10 of the right eyes on your post is much more important than a thousand of just random people. So, you know, I had my vanity metrics poll and, you know, nothing ever really felt the same afterwards <laughs> because those numbers weren't as high anymore. But other posts have just been things that just happened throughout the day in work, like things that I discovered, things that I noticed, situations that happened. Those posts get those posts get the type of engagement I was, I'm, I'm always looking for. It's the people that are, who are also in sales, also people who are in the B2B ecosystem system and who could potentially also be podcasters, which is what we work with. When you have an idea, do you just share it off the cuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd say I don't put a lot of planning. Why am I using a lot in this instance? I don't put any planning into my into my social media posts. They just literally come out. It's just, it's something happens. I, I sit down, I write it out in three minutes, grammar check, boom. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's also really encouraging for people because I know I still have a hard time with perfectionism. Sometimes I don't want to post because I'm like, is this even going to be seen? Right. But I did hear somebody else say recently, like, it's still better to get in front of a hundred people than no people. Like, even True. if your post only gets a hundred views, that's still a hundred views. 
And maybe it just reaches one person that matters. But if you don't post it, then you're not going to know at all. I completely agree. And to your point about it being encouraging, LinkedIn is a platform not just to be the number one advisor of the sales or marketing ecosystem, but it's also a platform that's very accepting to people talking about their journeys from their perspective. Even if you're 19 or 20 or 21 years old and you're looking for a new job or looking for a way to break through into a new industry, that's the journey. Talk about it. And you're going to attract the right type of eyes. It's going to be interesting to people. They're going to be looking to help you or they're going to relate to you. Yeah, the number one thing is just post it. It doesn't have to be perfect. LinkedIn isn't tough of a cookie to crack. You can notice the way people write and format things and kind of get in line with everybody else and understand the format pretty easily. And one of the things is though, LinkedIn, like if, if, if you post on LinkedIn and you are super out of the normal format, it really, really sticks out as a sore thumb. Like I've seen people that I connect with like a random person and they'll post a selfie of themselves and say, please like and comment. And I'm on LinkedIn, I'm sitting and I'm like, this is LinkedIn, what are you doing? <laughs> You're making it embarrassing for all of us. <laughs> also like a very popular format on LinkedIn is to space. It's like double space your posts. And like, if somebody goes on there and they post like a very long paragraph, I feel like that's harder to read and most people won't. Even if you're going to post a long text message, it needs to be spaced where people can read it easily. Yep, yep. You're, you're spot on there. It needs to be spaced in a way where people can consume it sentence by sentence and then decide if they want to keep reading. Because if you post a wall of text, like it's not nice to look at. It's not easy to consume. And, you know, people on LinkedIn are usually on average the type of people that spend a lot of time on LinkedIn are, you know, career folks. I'd say mostly it's a millennial driven platform. Even millennials and even Gen Xers have that same issue that all of us Gen Z people have, which is where we've been scrolling for so long that our attention span is fried. It is permanently fried. If you post something that's going to be a wall of text, it's just not going to speak to the dopamine craving addicts that we really are on social media. Yes. Okay. So one last thing that I would love to chat about is what you've learned in podcasting, because I feel like once you start a show, then everybody's like, how do you start a show? What mics do you use? When do you post? Do you have a social media calendar? So tell me some of like what you've learned and what you feel comfortable sharing with the audience. Number one thing is just sit down and do it. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be anything. Podcasting is literally an open platform right now. People are releasing the type of episode that we're doing right now. People are releasing solo episodes. People are interviewing each other on a single topic or on a variety of topics. There's lifetime interviews. There's, you name it, it's probably out there. There's true crime shows, which I only found out recently, but turns out that's a really, really popular thing. There's podcasts about yoga. There's podcasts about every single thing in the world. But I'd say the number one advice that I would have for if you want to really grow a successful show is to find a niche and stick to it. For a beginner, like get a simple microphone. It doesn't even have to be anything crazy. Like I'm on a headset right now. It still does the job just fine. You don't need anything fancy. Sit down, have those conversations, publish them and see what happens. There are pod Podcasting isn't really as difficult as it used to be. There are resources like, for example, Simplecast, which is the publishing that we use and that we talk about, but there's also Anchor out there, which is a free version, not as techy, but it's still there. For example, Simplecast, you upload the thing and it gets published on every podcasting platform out there. You don't have to go manually to Apple, Spotify, whatever. So take something like that and start uploading your Zoomcasts or your, or maybe even in real life podcast, if you want to do that, it doesn't matter. You're always going to be in good company and there are 
2.7 million active podcasts out there, out of which half are no longer publishing episodes. You're in a contested market, but you're really not in a contested market. Because what we've noticed is that the podcasting platforms are the last remaining social media outlet that isn't algorithm driven. So you don't have to worry about your post style or the algorithm deciding to say, hey, screw you, you're not getting any engagement anymore. You're going to build organic growth and it is so much less contested than YouTube or Instagram or anything else. So, you know, podcasting for the win. What about the importance of show notes? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, show notes. I mean, make sure to put in the keywords of the things that you're talking about, really. Show notes, you can make them as long or as simple as you want. But ultimately, what you want is something that's going to concisely at least portray the point of what's going on. And if you're having an interesting conversation, let's just say you're talking about drugs, sex, and rock and roll. You want to make sure that you have drugs, sex, and rock and roll in the show notes because that's going to get people to actually find that episode or that show. You want to make sure that, you know, the hot topic keywords that you as a person could sit down, Google and find that thing. It's all about the keywords. Episode names are also important. Make sure that the episode name is clear, concise, and at least causes some level of intrigue. Do you care about SEO at all? SEO is going to be the thing that's really going going to go together with the keywords that I mentioned. You want to make sure that those keywords are in there so that search engines would find your show. Like, do you look up different title suggestions that you're thinking of and see which one might rate higher? See, uh, my work is kind of cut out for me <laughs> currently. The SalesCast team is doing all of the heavy lifting for me when it comes to podcast production. I show up, I press record, and it's done. But yeah, we everything that we do is also SEO driven. So that is a big part of what, of, of what we as a company do, but it's not something that I personally do. It sounds like you really love your role there. <laughs> it is phenomenal. The type of people that I work with right now are the most caring, greatest human beings that I have met and they've never even like met me face to face like literally I haven't even been to the states yet to meet them I've been working with Colin for more than a year I've been and our, and our CEO Chris I've been working with for like like the last seven months these guys have been supporting every step of the way as you probably know there's currently a big conflict going on in Ukraine which is about what like 500 miles away from me and, uh, you know, potentially if Ukraine falls, we could technically become a war zone within the next couple of months. I've been getting all the slack in the world from my team and from my CEO and from my, these guys are writing to me every single day. How am I? Am I safe? Do they need to air rack me out of here? And this isn't the first time that they've shown this type of appreciation and this type of care towards me. And I would be willing to guarantee that towards all of the members that we work with. I just don't haven't talked to any of them about it. But yeah, like every time I've had a problem, they've been there to solve it. And it's been love and support. And one of the biggest things that I learned during my soul searching career journey of 2020 was it's not as important what you're doing as it is who you're doing it with. And ultimately landing with the right people in an industry that I've been interested in for forever is as good as it gets, really. I'm so happy for you. That's wonderful to hear. I feel like that's a really mature thing to say, too. It's a bit crazy, right? Uh, because every person that I know, not every person per se, I you know, know some entrepreneurs that are pretty happy with what they do, but most of the people that are working for somebody else hate working for somebody else. The experiences that people have, especially people my age who aren't exactly up in the chain of command, they're not C-suite, they don't have the respect and everything else that, that they would ultimately want, everybody hates everything. Me, I really can't relate to it at all. 
the same as I can't relate to wanting to run away from your parents at the age of 18. I can't relate to the idea of hating the people who employ me. I love that. My dad's going to love that too. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? From, from anything that I'm hearing, it sounds like your relationship with your father is very, very similar to what I have with my mom, where it's it's been like an open communication channel and everything else. So I'd want to figure out and I want to know how did he do it? What was his secret sauce on making sure that you guys are so close to it? I love that. That's a beautiful question. I have one more question for you. Is there anything that you wished like you could have asked your dad? Oh, wow. I mean, it's been a lot of mental bargaining of all the things that I would give up for a simple dinner with my dad as an adult. I would have loved to find out, you know, how his journey went and how was his 20s like, because my parents met when they were late 20s and he had already kind of quote unquote made it in life. And I consider myself as somebody who is a complete journeyman in that sense, who is still trying to kind of get to the point where I want to be, where I can kind of sit down, smell the roses and think, okay, yeah, this is where I want to be. You know, this is, this feels adequate. This feels, this feels like success. So I'd want to figure out like every step that he took and every hardship he had along the way. And just ultimately I'd want to get to know him more as a person because a lot of my maybe cynical sense of humor and a lot of the things that I've, the things that I say and the things that I can often portray myself as have been told to me as very, very similar to how my father used to be and how he used to behave. So I want to see it for myself. I want to see an older version of myself and give each other some shit. (laughs) Yeah. Does your mom ever say like, that reminds me of your dad? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. As she said, I'm I'm, I'm basically, you take take out the worst things of both of them and that's me. (laughs) I have a child like that. I get it. Yes. (laughs) Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and dropping so many gems. No, absolutely. It's been so much fun. Yeah. Go ahead and promote away. Let people know how they can find the level up show. Oh, so everything that I do is you can trace it from LinkedIn. So go to LinkedIn, visit Edward Permalis. We'll add the link probably in the show notes so so that you don't have to try to figure out how my last name is spelled. (laughs) So yeah, that's where you're going to find my show and everything else. Or you can look at, if you're not on LinkedIn podcasting platforms, level up show with Edward Permalis, it's going to be right there. And honestly, if any of the things that relate that I mentioned about building your career or trying to figure out a way relates to you, then my show is all about getting people on and figuring out what got them to the point where they are today. It might be a good resource for anybody to figure out and see if, see how to make their next career move or where to look. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. All right. So you listened to this episode twice, huh? I did. I listened to it twice. There's so many good things that he said, such good advice that I wanted to make sure I caught it all. And his name is Edward, but I'd like to call him Prince Edward because he's someone who's been born into a well-to-do family and has experienced the roller coaster of then losing a father at such an early age and finding out that even with a dramatic loss and inheriting part of a business, but it's really his father that was the key element in being able to sustain a business. And that's not unusual. A lot of businesses can't be passed on to their children because they don't have the expertise or knowledge or connections to be able to continue it. And it can fall apart. Uh, It's the same thing as we had a discussion with your husband about startups, that even startups that get certain funding, there's no guarantee that they're going to make the sales, make the connections, 
and be able to endure after a, a three-year period of time. Same thing with a new restaurant. It sounds wonderful. It can go like gangbusters for the first year or two, but that doesn't mean it's sustainable. And once the newness wears off, very possible that the sales then start to drop. And if you can't, again, sustain the type of relationships and be able to pivot and come up with new ideas, or you rest on your laurels, as he would say, that he thought that he was successful and was feeling comfortable. And doesn't that also happen to us all, whether we're playing sports or we're in business or in a certain relationship? If we take things for granted, it can slip away. Time has a way of not necessarily lasting forever when it comes to business or anything. So you have to be able to work at it. I like the way you all discussed the sales, how people who are just in it for the sales and for the money they can reach a point of desperation where that's all they're doing is pounding the table and they don't really care about their customer. They don't really care about the people that they're working with. It's all just cutthroat and trying to get to the front of the line and it doesn't matter who they trample on. And those type of people at the end of the day end up very lonely, number one. And number two, where the sales then start to decline because they're just playing the same one trick pony and are not expanding their boundaries. What does Edward do? He says, hey, look, start off if you want to use a social media outlet like LinkedIn, be able to address yourselves with key words, key phrases, show interest and pursue people that have similar interests. Be part of the conversation. Learn. Add to your skill level. Maybe it's another language. Maybe it's a copyright. Maybe it's taking some type of technical class. Be part of the conversation. Be part of improving your skills always. Keep fine-tuning what you want to be and what you want to do and go after it. And not be afraid to trip or to fall. Pick yourself up and get back in the race. Isn't it really based on certain failures that he's had in his life where he has seen what good things are to appreciate and understand that it's easy for good things to go away and that hard and dark times can occur at any time. There can be a storm cloud. You have to overcome it. So when the sun is shining, you have a deeper appreciation for it. And even at an early, early age, anything is ascertainable and it's never too late to have a new beginning. It's just wonderful. So many things that he gives you some clues on. So I really tip my hat off to Edward. The truth of the matter is, is that I found the episode so interesting. I listened to it twice. You know, my dad was a great salesman. And the truth of the matter is, I don't know if we could have run the business without his relationship building and his trust and type of relationship building that he did throughout his life. And how if it wasn't for my mom, we would have gone out of business because he was always willing to give away the ship if he had to, to get a sale and to participate in the business. And yet he had trouble getting the work sometimes out. And that's one of my fortes was that I was a hands-on fella in the shop and made sure that we were able to develop and train enough people and get enough talent to be able to back up some of the wild amount of business that my dad was able to bring in. So we really had quite a team effort. Isn't that what it takes? You have to have people with the opportunity to advance and to grow and to have that family atmosphere and to be able to have everyone included where they can progress, be part of your team. That's what you call building an in-house network where everyone feels like they're participating and are part of the success story. And that's the same thing with your customers. They want to be able to count on you, that you are looking to take care of their 
company and be able to work yourself and put in extra effort and take care of any situation or problem that they come up, that we step up and help them solve whatever problem that they're having and where we can show that we are like a right-hand man for them. Sometimes it's not about charging for every little item. It's showing sometimes that, yes, we want to get paid, but that we want to really show that we're there to help no matter what and that we back up whatever we say because we don't just talk the talk, but we walk the walk. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 